Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Reading this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord, and therefore encourage one another with these words. And one more passage, Acts chapter 1. And this is, I think it's 907-89, somewhere in there, somewhere around page 909. It's Acts chapter 1. And we will read verses 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth." And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come again the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, this morning, your word is a rock, it is a fortress. The grass withers, the flower fades, your word stands forever. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word was made manifest among us through the person of Jesus Christ. That is the gift that we celebrate this morning. So I pray that that same word, would go forth. Your word already told us it does not return void, so I pray that the seed that is sown would fall upon good ground, that it would produce, that it would bring fruit, and that it would change and transform lives in this place this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've been working through a four-part Advent series. This is the fourth week. In week one, We talked about the Old Testament promises of Christ, that Jesus is in the Old Testament. He's promised in the Old Testament. Week two, we preached John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Last week, if you want to hear the Christmas story, that was last week, you could go online and hear it. Uh, We simply told the story of the birth of Jesus. And this week, to close the Advent series, we talk about the return of Christ. Now it may seem unusual to preach a sermon on the return of Christ on Christmas Eve. I would argue it's the perfect time to preach about the return of Christ. It finishes the story of why Jesus came the first time. This is the season of Advent, and Advent means coming or arrival. In Advent, we anticipate his coming and His arrival. We, we join and celebrate with the people in the Old Testament who for centuries looked for the promise of the Christ. They knew He was coming. The Old Testament is filled with the promise of this, this coming Messiah. And finally, 2,000 years ago, a face and a name was placed and affixed upon the promise of the person of Jesus. So just as people in the Old Testament anticipated the arrival of the Christ, so we too anticipate the return of our Savior. We look for the return of Christ with the same level of hope and joy 
that the people in the Old Testament looked for the arrival of Christ the first time. The end times fascinates a lot of people. Hollywood cashes in on people's fascination of the end time. I looked it up and there have been at least 30 movies made about the end times out of Hollywood over the years. And what is interesting is that the movies and people's interests tend to center around what is called the rapture and the ensuing fallout of the rapture and not the actual main event, which is the return of Christ to this world. It rarely, in fact, I can't think of any movie uh, that actually has centered around the actual point, and that is Jesus is returning to earth. It's all about judgment and fear and people disappearing, and there's always lots of drama because that's what sells. And so that's what Hollywood makes. And there's two problems that I want to address about our understanding. I'm talking, I'm saying our as far as the culture, which bleeds over to the church, the understanding of the end times. Problem number one. People get their theology, which is just a word that means ideas about God. That's all that word means, and everybody has them. Everybody has a theology. The atheist has a theology. They have ideas about God. That idea might be that God doesn't exist, but it's still an idea about God. It's unavoidable that people have ideas about God. And people get these ideas usually from books and movies more than they do from Scripture. They receive their ideas about God from their parents growing up, from the church they attended, from the places that they go, conversations that they hear, usually much more than they do from the actual Bible. That's problem number one. In 1995, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins wrote a book entitled Left Behind. I remember when that book came out. It was groundbreaking in Christianity. Everybody ran to get the book and, and talk about it. And then it became more popular when a series of movies was made beginning in 2000. I think they're up to six movies now in this Left Behind series. Started out with Kirk Cameron early on. In 2014, that version of Left Behind starred Nicolas Cage. And anytime you can place a leading Hollywood actor like Nicolas Cage in a movie, it gets people's attention. There, there will be people that would go watch the movie because he is in it that have no interest in the end times. So that shaped and informed people's ideas about what is to come. The problem with this particular book and movie is that it is a severe misrepresentation of how Scripture outlines end time events. But if you don't study Scripture, you assume, well, that must be how it's going to turn out why would they make a movie uh, about it based on something that's real if it wasn't to turn out that way? As if anything that's ever came out of the entertainment world <laughs> sticks completely to the actual story. Uh, I, I watch especially things in history, World War II movies and things like this, and I'll go back and read the story and it's like, well, it actually didn't happen quite like that. There's always artistic license. And with Le the Left Behind series, they took a tremendous amount of artistic license. But that sets in people's minds and eventually they don't remember where they got their ideas from. They just think, well, this is how it's all going to happen. That is but one example of how popular culture dominates the minds of people who don't carefully search, study, and read the Holy Scriptures. So I said there were two problems. The first one comes from outside the church. The second one comes from within. And the second issue is with how we see the end times comes from how we have developed as the church, as the people of God, develop numerous views on how the end time will occur and the order in which events will happen. The first problem happens because people don't know their Bible. The second issue comes from people who do know their Bibles. I have friends who I really disagree about the end time on that really do know their Bibles really well. So it's a different reason why these things happen. And if you've been reading in your Advent devotional, I hope that's been a blessing. I hope it's helped you. I think nobody can say they don't, didn't have time to do it because it takes me about three minutes a day to read through that. They're very short. It's usually less than two pages on a very small book. So time can't be a reason uh, to not read this. 
but it's, it, it's, been, it, it's been helpful. So if you've been reading through this, on day eight, you would have read this from your devotional, or from your Advent devotional. Quote, over and over, the Bible baffles our curiosity about just how certain things happened. How did this star get the Magi from the east to Jerusalem? It does not say that it led them or went before them on the way to Jerusalem. It only says they saw a star in the east and they came to Jerusalem. And how did that star go before them in the little five-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, as Matthew says it did? And how did a star rest over the place where the child was born? And I love the next line. The next line is, the answer is, we do not know. There are numerous efforts to explain it in terms of conjunctions of planets or comets or supernovas or miraculous lights. We just do not know. And I want to exhort you not to become preoccupied, not to become fixated on theories that are only tentative in the end and have very little spiritual significance. I risk a generalization to warn you. People who are exercised and preoccupied with such things as how the star worked and how the Red Sea split and how the manna fell and how Jonah survived the fish and how the moon turns to blood are generally people who have what I call a mentality for the marginal. And that's what I want to warn us about this morning. Not to have a mentality of the marginal. Because people who have this mentality tend to overlook the great picture and meaning of the Bible. Redemption, justification, sanctification, transformation, glorification. You get lost in things that at the end of the day you'll never know. And at the end of the day don't really matter. There will come a day when we're going to look back and know. C.S. Lewis said, and I'm paraphrasing him a little bit, but C.S. Lewis said when we get to the other side in the age to come, we'll turn around and look at the scriptures and all the things we didn't know, and we'll go, oh, that's, it all makes sense now. I get it. The scriptures make perfect sense. It's that phrase mentality for the marginal that I want to use to warn us about regarding biblical prophecy and end-time events. I am not primarily this morning interested in teaching all these different views on what will happen in the future, and there are a lot of them. There are a lot of them. There are two areas where people disagree on timing. The book of Revelation speaks of a thousand years when Satan will be bound and cast into a bottomless pit, and the people of God will reign during this thousand years. We call it the millennial reign. There's three views on this. Christ will return before the thousand years. Number two, Christ will return after the thousand years. Or number three, an idea that I hold tentatively is that the thousand-year reign is actually symbolic and so you cannot press it into future coming events. And I hold that particular view because pressing it into before or after Christ, um, any way you put it, either or, uh, becomes really problematic to make everything work. Um, and so I do hold... Uh, what's called an amillennial view. Not that the millennial doesn't exist, but that it is a symbolic of the reign of Christ. Then there is a debate within the group that believes Christ will return before the thousand years. And the belief that there will be a seven-year period called the Great Tribulation. Does Christ return before it starts? Option one. Does Christ return in the middle of it? Option two. Or does Christ return at the end of it? Someone asked a seminary professor in St. Louis, uh, which of these beliefs he held and his answer, he said, are those my only options? Uh, and that's kind of where I, I look at it. It's, uh, so there is a debate on how much biblical prophecy has been fulfilled. I would be called a partial preterist. I, I think all Orthodox Christians who affirm full preterism, preterism simply meaning that the events have already been fulfilled in Revelation. In Daniel and Revelation, they've all been fulfilled. Uh, I think anybody who would say they are a full preterist uh, would have to deny the second coming of Christ and would be declared a heretic. I don't think you can abide within Orthodox Christianity and deny the second coming of Christ. I think that places you outside of what is considered to be a believer. 
But I do regard much of Revelation as being fulfilled in that first century with the return of Christ yet to come. However, we would not say that those who differ in the timing of the events are heretical. I have good friends, as I said, who I regard as Christians and believers and love and think I'm going to celebrate with them and Jesus throughout all eternity who I think are totally wrong on these ideas. And that's okay because they would look at me and say the same thing. So that's okay. Why? Because we don't want to have a mentality for the marginal. And those things are marginal. No one is going to know for sure until they happen. I, I do not anticipate at any point in my lifetime that somebody's going to figure something out in Scripture and everybody's going to go, oh yeah, we agree with that. We didn't see that the last 2,000 years. Augustine and Aquinas, two of the most brilliant minds to ever live. I don't know that anyone has lived uh, over the last 1,000 years that was as brilliant as Thomas Aquinas. If Aquinas and these people are not figuring these things out, I don't expect to figure them out. Here's what's important to know, is that heaven will come to earth. That's the whole point of the end times. Heaven comes down and is rejoined with earth. John sees the city of New Jerusalem coming out, coming down. Heaven is coming down and being reunited with His people. The idea of a temple, God tabernacled. This is what John 1.14 is. This is, what Jesus, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is God tabernacling among us in the flesh. This is going to be fulfilled in a greater reality when the tabernacle, that great temple, comes down and is reunited with earth. God tabernacled or dwelled among His people in a tent and then a temple in the Old Testament and the New Testament who is the temple of God. We are, as believers. Paul said, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? We don't have to go to a place anymore. We gather here, but we don't have a, a physical location where we go and meet God. God dwells inside of us. Heaven meets earth within us, but only within us. Heaven has not met earth in our cities, in our businesses, and in our government. In the age to come, heaven will come to earth, and the glory of the Lord will fill all the earth. This is the promise of Habakkuk. For the Lord... Excuse me, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We, there's a song that, that sings that. Um, it, it's a prayer. Cover the earth with your glory as the waters cover the sea. That is singing the prophecy of Habakkuk chapter 2. In the Old Testament, God's glory filled a room within the temple. In the New Testament, God's glory fills us. But when Christ returns, the glory of the Lord is going to fill all the earth. So you see how the glory of God is going to expand. The Old Testament, it's in one small room, and it's only one day a year. And only one man, the high priest, one day a year gets to experience the presence of God. In the New Testament, when Jesus is crucified, the veil in the temple, the Bible says, is ripped in two. The veil that separated the most holy place where the Shekinah glory of God came was ripped from top to bottom as if God reached down and just tore it like a piece of paper and said, now everybody can come in and feel and experience and know the presence of God. And that's what it means to dwell and be with Christ, is to have the Holy Spirit within us. When Christ returns, that same glory that's in us now is expanded to fill the entire earth. And the next great event in God's redemptive history is the coming of the earth. I mentioned the rapture. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Um, there are different views on that. The idea that it's just a pure metaphor. Um, there's people like N.T. Wright who would hold this view, uh, who will make statements like those of us on the other side of the pond, referring to Europe, Great Britain, uh, he said, we, we look at you all in America and scratch our heads at how you see this as a, as a literal event. That would be the first view. The second view is that people will disappear and go away in the sky, leaving the world and other people behind, desolation and destruction. That's been popularized by this movie, Left Behind. Uh, and then there is a very, that uh, this is a very popular view in American evangelicalism the past couple hundred years. This view is absent from church history, you don't find it, and it is absent in most of the rest of the world, and I find no biblical uh, support for this view. 
the view that many hold, and again, uh, you can disagree, and we can all still go to heaven together, uh, or uh, as I don't believe anybody actually goes to heaven, because I find no biblical support that anybody ever actually goes to heaven uh, in eternity. Uh, that's informed much more uh, by culture and guys like Plato than it is scripture. Again, heaven comes to earth, and we live for all eternity in a restored and a recreated new heavens and new earth. I fully expect for this renewed earth to be occupied for all of eternity. This is what the Bible teaches. Uh, but there is a view uh, of the rapture. Uh, I am okay taking it literally. I, again, tentatively take it literally, that we will rise in the air to meet the Lord. But when Paul uses this language about rising up and meeting Jesus in the clouds, he is employing language that is used in the culture about the Roman Caesars and about royalty in that day. When people in the city would see the king from afar off, they would go out, meet the king, and they would usher him back into the city. And the word that's used, the Greek word that's used there that Paul uses is the same word within the culture of that day that is used for people to go out, meet the king, and bring him back in the city. So I take this idea of what we call the rapture, as the people of God meeting him in the air and ushering him back. Because nowhere does it say that we're going to disappear. Um, it does say that Christ is going to return. So I take it uh, because the Bible says in the, in the text, when this happens, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Well, where's the Lord going to be at? He is returning back to the earth. If I go away, I'm going away to a place where he's not because he's here. He's returning to the earth to set up his kingdom and rule and reign forever. So we can, people again, disagree on specifics and timing, but again I say don't get caught up in the mentality of the marginal. Keep your eyes on what matters. And what matters is this. This is all that matters. King Jesus is coming back to this earth just as for sure as he came back the first time that we celebrate Christmas. That's what matters. And that's what gets com almost completely ignored in these conversations. All the people caught up in how it's going to happen and when it's going to happen. It's like, hold on, you're missing the main event. The main event is King Jesus is going to return and set all of this nonsense right upon this earth. Just as he walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, he will walk on this earth once again. So I have a rather simplistic or simple view of the future. I'm dogmatic about very little. I use the word tentatively twice because my mind has changed over the years on these things and may still change in the future. So I hold some of these things loosely. What I am dogmatic about is this. Jesus is coming back. That we know. I have my positions as all, all preachers do and many believers who aren't preachers hold things pretty dogmatic. I would encourage you to hold some of these things fairly loosely as far as the, the order and how it will happen. Um, but what I want you to embrace is Jesus coming back. And rather than that be something that fills us with fear, it ought to fill us with as much hope and joy as the Christmas season does. Christmas time is a time of joy. We sing Christmas carols. Uh, we exchange gifts. The Christmas is a time of joy, or at least it's supposed to be. We expect and anticipate Christmas to bring about glad tidings. And so the same emotions, the same feelings should go with us when we talk about the return of Christ. What did Paul say at the end of the first passage I read in the Thessalonians when he closes it? He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. The return of Christ for the believer is not supposed to be something that's to scare you. It is supposed to be something that comforts you. Jesus is coming back. Revelation eleven, fifteen. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever. Germany, Italy, France, China, Russia, the United States, Argentina, Brazil, on and on and on. 
They're sovereign today, but someday they will come under the rule of our Lord and Christ. And when Christ does return, He does return to judge the earth. There will be a judgment upon the earth. But for the believer, it's a time of hope. He returns to consummate His marriage with His bride, which is the church. Revelation 19, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. We're the bride. We are the bride of Christ, and He is coming back to consummate that marriage. And we see this judgment over and over and over through different symbols and images in the book of Revelation, that all of this nonsense in the world, and there is a lot of nonsense going on in the world, all of this insanity, all of this injustice against our great God will not go unpunished. His wrath will be poured out when He returns. But that is not to make the people of God afraid who are in Christ. If it stirs fear, and it did in me, I was a young person who was terrified that the rapture was going to come and I wasn't going to be ready, like a lot of young people are. I remember being a teenager and not being where I should be in God. And one night, for whatever reason, I don't know why I thought the rapture had come. But I thought the rapture had came. Now this is how you know who you think is saved, is who is the person that comes to your mind that you could call to see if they're still around. That's when you know who you have confidence in. If they pick up the phone, I'm good. And I did. I called late, late at night. I called our assistant pastor and I thought, man, if that guy's not going, I don't have a chance. So I called Roy up church and he picked up the phone. And I didn't tell him why I called. I honestly don't remember why I told him I called at 11 o'clock at night. But the real reason why I called him was... Just want to see if you're still on this earth. Uh, but if you're in Christ, you don't have anything to fear. And I hope that we don't live a life that makes us feel saved or lost like we're going in and out of these turnstile doors and like, well, today I'm saved, tomorrow I'm lost uh, because I've had a bad day, I kind of slipped up or I, I said something I shouldn't, I had a thought I shouldn't have. Um, my friend... You are justified in Christ. If you are justified in Christ, you are secure in Him. Now, if you're justified in Christ, you're going to live a life that bears fruit. You're going to live a life that lives a life above and outside of a sinful life. I'm not giving license for loose living, but I'm saying that you're not lost. You, know, you don't have to be afraid that I'm going to have three bad Tuesdays next year, and if Jesus comes back on one of those days, buddy, I'm out. It's not how it works. If that's how it works, please stop giving to this church, and please stop coming on Sunday mornings. Let's all go and eat, drink, and be merry until we die and stop all this. We're wasting our time. But if the Bible is true, the Bible is real, I am secure in Him. If it stirs fear in the heart of an unbeliever, then that unbeliever is well grounded in reality. The return of Christ should stir fear in an unbeliever. I would not want to meet Christ without abiding in Him, without being in Christ. So yes, for the unbeliever, the return of Christ is something that ought to bring fear. But for us, the people of God, it is a message of hope. Things will not go on forever as they are today. Christ will make the world right again. Romans 8, often considered the, the crescendo of Scripture. Just a beautiful, beautiful chapter. Paul says, this is verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Another myth is that we're all going to just be spirit things floating around up in the heavenlies. No. According to Scripture, we're going to have real bodies. Paul said we're going to have a body like as unto His glorious body. A resurrected Christ who walked through walls and disappeared. He wasn't limited anymore in His resurrected glorified state. He wasn't limited by time and space. He lived in an eternal resurrected body. It is that kind of body. If you want to see this more, I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 15. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible. You have to read it slowly and carefully and probably two or three times just to start to grasp what Paul is saying. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to have a real body. Please do not view issues like gender and abortion and social injustice primarily through political lies. That's what the American evangelical church is doing right now. As a whole, it's viewing these issues through political lies. Before they are political, they are first spiritual matters. And when Christ returns, because there's been a lot of talk about social injustice. It's, I think worth noting that in the Old Testament, one of the things that God is very concerned about in the Old Testament over and over is justice. And he has a heart for people who suffer injustice. Now this idea of social injustice has been politicized, um, but there really are people who experience injustice in this world. But when Christ returns, Justice will be served upon the ungodly and upon the godly. And mercy will be served. And that's what I look for. Because if I get justice, we talk about injustice. It's like, we don't want injustice. We want justice. I don't want justice. If I get justice for who I am, I'm in trouble. I'm not looking for justice. I'm looking for mercy. And when Christ returns... Mercy will be served upon those who have the name of Christ and are washed in His blood. So what does the new creation look like? Well, one, it's real. It's not a fairy tale. It really will happen. Just as sure as today we're going to walk out of here and live a real existence in a particular time and place and space. You know, we live in the United States. We live in the state of Texas. We're here in the suburbs of Dallas living life just as real as that is. The age to come is just as real and just as material and just as physical. We will live an eternal life in a very real world. The problem with this is we are so grounded in this life that we rarely give heaven a second thought. I grew up hearing songs and we sang a lot about it because decades ago, say even before my time when these songs were produced, to be a believer wasn't exactly always popular and it still obviously isn't. But on top of not being popular as being a believer was life was hard. People, I mean, life was hard. And so they started singing songs like, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. I appreciate the sentiment of these songs. I really do. Um, what's happened is we've got a lot more comfortable in life. We live, we all live a pretty luxurious life compared to our grandparents and so on. And we get really comfortable in this life. But Paul said, 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are so steeped in the first coming of Christ, and I thank God for Christmas, but that we often forget the second coming. We sing a Christmas song. I mentioned this last week. Joy to the world. Right? It's a Christmas carol. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. But it's not a Christmas song at all. It wasn't written as a Christmas song. The guy that wrote the song in the late 18th century would probably be shocked if he found out people were singing at Christmas. It's not a Christmas song. At least originally it wasn't. It was actually a song about the second coming of Christ. And I hope you see how awesome that is. That a song that was supposed to be about the second coming of Christ was made to be about the first coming of Christ because really they're just kind of, they're two acts in the same play. There's act one, there's this long intermission, what we call the last days, the church age, what we live in, and then there's act two, but the song applies to act one as much as it does act two. So you've always heard it as a Christmas carol, so I want to read the words and then think about this as being about the second coming of Christ. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns, let all their songs employ. White fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat Repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and the wonders of His love. And he wrote that saying, that's what's to come. It applies perfectly to Christmas. That's why we sing it. But it's a song about the second coming. We cannot talk about the second coming of Christ without talking about the resurrection of the dead. We all have loved ones who have died in the faith. Anyone who lives long enough has loved ones. And the longer we live, the more that will be true. I know that my life will continue to be marked by phone calls that tell me people who I love dearly, who I looked up to, are gone. I went to school with a class of about 100, 110 kids. And at least that I know about, that I've heard about, I think seven or eight of those are already gone. And I'm not that old. And so last week, week and a half ago, I get, a, get the news. A friend, a mentor, a man that I grew up with, thir- only 13 years older than me, has died. Massive heart attack. Um, I would have never been a drummer if it wasn't for him. I spent hours and hours and hours and hours watching him as a kid eight, nine, ten years old. So by the time I was 16, I'd have, I figured at least 6,000 hours of practice behind the drum set by the time I was 16. But that would have never happened if it wasn't for this man. Um, I studied him. He was, he was my mentor. I would try to emulate everything he did on the drum set. Um, and he's gone. And I still now, once or twice a day, it'll hit me and I'll think, it's not right. I should be able to go back to Illinois and go back to where I'm from and see him. He should be there. And he's never going to be there again. That's not morbid. That's just the reality of life. And I know the older I get, that's that's only going to accelerate. It's the reality of life. When Christ returns... The dead in Christ will raise again. Again, mentality for the marginal. Well, their bodies have rotted away. What about the people that have been cremated? It's like, don't have a mentality for the marginal. God's going to do it. Don't worry about how he's going to do it. Uh, I don't think God has problems figuring things out. They are going to be resurrected again with a glorious body like Jesus' glorious body. The dead really will rise again. We can't make sense of this by our natural laws. It will be a miraculous return of life to a resurrected, immortal, eternal body. We will be reunited with them. I fully expect that everybody who has ever died in faith, I will see again. Paul said we will be known even as we are known. I'm going to know who they are. 
That's a promise. We will be reunited with people who died in the faith, and we will live forever in a restored new heavens and new earth. Those two things are our promise and our hope. The goal is not to separate heaven from earth. It is to reunite them. They are made for each other. Just as a bride and groom are made for each other. That's the picture here. Male and female from the beginning, God created in His design for God's glory. The great divorce between mankind and God in the garden temple of Eden has now been annulled by the coming of Christ. That relationship is severed in the garden by sin. And we see what, what, I, what I really hope people see about the Bible, what I strive to teach about the Bible is the Bible is one story. It is one grand story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We just see it all through the Old Testament. We just see progressively, continually, God unfolding His redemptive purpose. We are living right now toward the end of that redemptive purpose. And there is coming a day, and it could come in our lifetime, and that's what I, I hope we understand, is that it very well could. You very well may never see death. That is a possibility. He might not come back for 300 years, but He might come back in our lifetime. The church has always lived this way. The church has always anticipated the return of Christ in their lifetime. I think we're one of the generations who now don't as much anticipate it as people did years ago. There were, there were groups of people. My pastor knew one of these people, but there was a whole group of people decades ago, 1950s, early, probably 50s especially, that they went out, and I mean, they maxed out their credit. My pastor knew a guy that went and bought a new Cadillac that he couldn't afford because, well, Jesus is going to be back by the time I, I don't have to worry about this. Well, how'd that work out for you? <laughs> Every one of those people, the creditor at some point did come knocking. Yeah, you don't, don't worry about it, Mr. Creditor. Jesus is coming back. You just give me a little more time. The end time is about the consummation of the kingdom of God. King Jesus is coming back in person to finish his work of redemptive history. And it's a kingdom. A kingdom is not a democracy. A kingdom is about one person. It's all about the king. The king rules and reigns and all pay tribute to him. What is the book of Revelation about? I can give you the book of Revelation and, uh, and tell you everything you need to know about Revelation. Is in verse 1. It says, this book starts out, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Done. We call it a revelation. It's not supposed to be in a revelation about revealing of events. It's about the revealing of the person of Jesus. So anytime you read the revelation or hear somebody talk about it, just know, go back to verse 1 and say, the book is about Jesus. It's a, not about the revealing to us of mysteries. It's about revealing to us the identity of Christ. The kingdom is inaugurated at the birth of Christ and it is consummated with His return. The season of Advent then is about the kingdom because it's about the King. The King that's born 2,000 years ago in weakness. We call this the incarnation. The Son of God is not created, but rather He is the eternal God manifested in human flesh in the ultimate form of weakness. What else is more weak than an infant baby? We see him first appearing as an infant, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. It's a scene made for a Hallmark card or a Hallmark movie or a Norman Rockwell painting. But look at the same Jesus, the description in Revelation chapter 1. So we have Jesus in the New Testament, baby, helpless, crying, has to be fed, diapers changed, has to learn how to walk. And then look at Jesus in Revelation 1. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And hear the description. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, 
like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was also like the sun shining in full strength. That's a description of Jesus. That's Jesus as He really is in all of His glory. And when I saw Him, John did what we all would have done. He said, I fell at His feet as though I was dead. But He laid His right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That is the Jesus of Christmas time in His full glory and His full might. And I close by saying, I think the thing that is the most overlooked in this conversation about Christmas and the second coming of Christ is the implication for the here and now. So, so we look back 2,000 years at His first appearing. We look forward. We don't know how long, how many years, how many days, how many hours. We don't know. But what about right now? Sunday, December 24th, 2023. What about the implications for Tuesday, December 26th, 2023? What about the implications for March 13th of next year? What about the here and now? How then should we live in light of the second coming? Well, that's another sermon for another time. Maybe that's what we do every Sunday. Every Sunday, that's really what we do. We ask that question in different ways. How then should we live? How the, the struggle, the person that's helped me most with this is an author named Eugene Peterson. I've given some of you his books. He's been dead now for five years, but one of my, probably personally my favorite author of all time. And Eugene Peterson spent 30 years in the pastorate wrestling with this, really this one question. How do we get what we do on Sundays in our spiritual life to import and inform and alter and transform what we do the other six days of the week? That's what he really spent most of his life wrestling with. How then should we live in light of the second coming? Paul talks a lot about living in light of the second coming. If you knew Christ was going to return one year from today, we wouldn't know that, but for argument's sake, if we knew, hey, Jesus is coming back on Christmas Eve of 2024, how would your next 365 days look? I dare say they'd look very different than what they're going to look like. Myself included. No, completely. I'm right there with you. But the reality is I might not have 365 days. I may have 30, 40 more years. I may not have six months. There is no promise. So then, with that reality, every day we should ask ourselves, how should we live in light of this? What decisions should I make? If we keep this mindset, it informs our decisions, our choices. When we go to make a decision, I don't care if it's vocational, financial, emotional, regarding your health, regarding your relationships, every area of your life, Christ wants to be imported into. But for today, for this day, let us celebrate Christmas as a time to rejoice and a time to comfort one another with the promise that Jesus is coming again. God bless you this morning. I'm going to pray a prayer over us and then we're going to close uh, with a Christmas hymn. Let's pray. Father, we have gazed deep into your word. We have looked at the promise of your coming, and that is the hope for every believer. I pray this morning that everyone in this place would find themselves in you, standing righteous before you, a life that is dedicated for the cause of the kingdom of God. And I pray this morning, Lord, once again for blessings upon our families as we celebrate with our families this Christmas season, that, uh, that joy would fill our homes and our lives and our hearts and our relationships. Uh, I pray that during this season we live in an area of the country that uh, overall does pretty well, but let us be uh, 
aware of the fact that there are even around us uh, people who are suffering and hurting uh, in many ways this holiday season. And as a people of God, we're called to minister to those people, maybe now more than ever in this season. So help us not to be selfish. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have an attitude of thanksgiving and of gratitude, of thankfulness for what we do have. Lord, that we would not be proud or exalted in ourselves, but that we would live humbly before you, that you would be exalted in our lives. I pray your blessings upon all our people here this morning. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. our hands in dismissal. Father, thank you this morning for the gift that you've given us. For God so loved the world, and we thank you for that love. We exult in that love. Lord, we we feel and embrace and receive that love, that we truly are loved by you, and for that we are forever grateful. Help us today to extend and return that love within our families and to show your grace and your glory as we go our separate ways, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this morning.